Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. We're joined today by a scientist who has found a way to tap into Americans' love affair with our dogs, but very much in the name of serious science. Eleanor Carlson is an assistant professor in the Bioinformatics and Integrative Biology program here at UMass Medical School, and she directs the Vertebrate Genomics Group at the Broad Institute. Eleanor, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. So you have this interesting trifecta. Your sweet spot is sort of studying the genetics of people and wolves and domesticated dogs. <laughs> um, so I want to start with maybe the most basic question. Why do you do that? So I think this is something that um, most dog owners are not super surprised by this, but it turns out that dogs and people are not as different as sometimes we might think they're going to be. Hmm. And the way we think about this in terms of the science is that we might compare a dog to a person and say, wow, they're totally different. Dog walks on four legs and has got fur and all this stuff. But if you kind of broaden your perspective a bit and you go, what's the difference between a dog and a person versus the differences between, say, a person and a cockroach, yeah. dogs and people start to look very similar. And that's reflected in their genes as well. Mm -hmm. And so by studying the genetics of dogs, we actually learn about human genetics as well. So I'm wondering how you sort of, how that occurred to you? Was there a light bulb moment or was it sort of a slow realization that this genetic overlap between people and animals might be something that's worth plumbing? So I started working on dog genetics back when I was a PhD student. Uh, my mentor at the time, Shashtin Lindlato, came to me and she said, you know, we're doing this crazy project. We're going to sequence the dog genome, and then we're going to see if we can find the genes that are responsible for things like coat color. And I thought, that sounds super exciting. I love genetics. I've loved genetics ever since I was in high school. And, and the idea that we might actually be able to find new things, controlling something that you could see on an animal sounded like a lot of fun. Um, but I didn't actually know anything about dogs. I've never owned a dog. Um, I didn't know anything about the breeds. I had to go out and buy like the giant encyclopedia of dog breeds <laughs> so I could start looking up what a pug was and what a boxer was and all this kind of stuff. And I think in some ways that gives me an interesting perspective on it because I was coming in as an outsider. Um, and I could start looking at the dogs and start kind of thinking about all the different genetic differences between them. And so as I said, in, in the early days we were kind of thinking about things like coat color, but as time moved on, we started working on things like cancer, because mm -hmm. a lot of the dog breeds get cancers that are very similar to human cancers. And we thought, well, if we could understand why greyhounds get so much bone cancer, that might also tell us something about what causes bone cancer in people. Mm. And then as I was kind of finishing up my PhD, we actually started working on a project on um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it turns out that dogs have something, they call it canine compulsive disorder, but it's very similar in many ways to human OCD. And I think that was the point in time when I realized that, you know, I, coat color was one thing and then there was cancer and I could kind of understand why that was similar. But then when I started reading more and more about um, psychiatric diseases and behavioral disorders in dogs and started understanding how incredibly similar those two things yeah. were, I think that kind of broadened my perspective on what we could actually study in dogs as a way of understanding both dogs and people. Yeah, and so for people who aren't scientists or maybe just don't have the scientific mind um, like that, walk us through that about the connection between humans. You know, this, this um, I don't want people to get the impression that you're studying dogs' health. I mean, you are in a way, but really the goal is to learn about human health and disease. 
Yeah, so what I tell people when I talk about this, because I work with many people who have dogs and love them, but we are also really focused on, on working on human disease. We work at a medical research institute, and so we are really interested in figuring out uh, better solutions to human disease as well. But at the end of the day, it actually turns out that these two goals are very complementary. So for example, uh, one of the cancers that we're studying is something called hemangiosarcoma in dogs, and in humans it's called angiosarcoma. Mm -hmm. And in both people and in dogs, this is a really, really dangerous disease. And most of the people who get it, and most of the dogs who get it, they're going to die from it. Mm -hmm. And so by studying the disease in dogs, while our goal is to understand the, the cancer in people and come up with better ways to treat the people as well, as part of doing that, we're actually going to be discovering new ways to help the dogs as well. And mm. so we're not, it's not an either or. We're yeah. actually, our goal is to actually help both the humans and the pet dogs at the same time. That's terrific. And so um, one of the um, ways that you're able to glean this information is by really um, getting information from dog owners. And so that led to something called Darwin's Dogs. And so far, if I have this right, 19,000 dogs are I think so. And it's, it's, the number keeps changing every day. It, it's totally amazing, the response we've had. You know, I had a graduate student that asked me last year, you know, why do you study dogs? And I thought about it for a minute and I was like, well, first of all, there's 90 million of them in the United States alone. Really? Wow. And every single one of those dogs lives with a person who knows everything about them. You know, it's not just that they take them to the vet and they get electronic medical records kind of recording all of their health history, but they also know their behavior, they know their sleep cycles, they know what environment they, they live in, they know what foods they're eating. There's no other animal that we have that much information about. And it turns out, as we discovered with Darwin's dogs, that people are actually really excited to share that information with us, which has been just amazing. And what I always tell people is that one of the impressive numbers is that we have 19,000 dogs signed up. But as a scientist, I think the even more exciting part is that the owners have answered something like 2.1 million questions yeah. for us at this point in time. And that's where the real, real power of a project like this comes in. If all we had was just the genetic information of the dogs, there's not a whole lot we could do with that. Yeah. In order to actually advance something like medical research, we need to understand both the genetics, but we need to know about the health of the dogs uh -huh. as well. And some of the behaviors too. I mean, full disclosure, I enrolled my dog in this. And so answering some of those surveys was really interesting. Like, is he startled by loud noises, right? Does he sit in a certain way? Um, so why are those questions important and what information do you glean from them? Yeah, so this was something that we actually um, kind of added in very early on, was this really, really uh, wide, wide range of different kinds of questions. And this was partly because I'd been working on this compulsive disorder in the dogs, and it occurred to me one day, hanging out with my sister, who has dogs, um, that I couldn't completely understand. So we had compulsive disorder, which is a behavioral disorder, but at the same time, if you own, say, a golden retriever, that dog will retrieve a ball for hours on end. And it's not a behavioral disorder, it's totally normal for a golden retriever. But from the outside, it kind of seems like a, a kind of obsession or yeah. a compulsive behavior or something. And so I was thinking, well, we can, we can study the kind of severe behavioral disorders, but even if we could just understand how you change DNA, which is this long list of A's, C's, G's, and T's, how, how a change in that can actually lead to something as complicated as a change in the behavior of the mm -hmm. dogs, mm -hmm. that's going to teach us something about the way DNA works. And at the end of the day, that may be the kind of key to understanding 
better what the underlying causes are of something like a psychiatric disease as the first step in coming up with better treatments. So part of what you're studying is how the information gets passed from generation to generation over time through the DNA. Exactly. And how that impacts behaviors. Yeah, and when you're studying something like coat color, you tend to see changes that are easy to find. They change a gene, you find that change. If the dog inherits that one change in that one gene, then they'll have a different coat color. Yeah. Uh, the problem with something like behavior is that you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of different genes, uh -huh. each of which have little changes in them that have a slight effect on the behavior of the dog. Yeah. And this is why we need so many people to enroll. Is to study something as complicated as behavior, we need to have uh -huh. a lot of dogs participating. Are you still enrolling? You know, I, I always say this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing when people ask me how many dogs we want, and I'm like, all of them. <laughs> 90 million. <laughs> exactly. Uh, at the end of the day, the way the, the genomic science works, so the genome is really, really big, which is why we need to have so many dogs enrolled to understand what's going on with it. And basically, the more dogs that are signed up and the more we know about them, the more complicated the questions are that we can yeah. answer. And so we'll go from answering something as simple as coat color, which we can do now very easily with the data we have, um, to something as complicated as behavior or cancer. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were in high school when it first occurred to well, that you fell in love with genetics in high school. So when did it first occur to you that science was something for you? So I always really liked science. Uh, my mother is a scientist, and I think that she kind of instilled a love for discovery very early on um, and just asking questions. I think that's the biggest part of science that's often forgotten is that it's not about learning information, it's mm -hmm. about learning how to ask questions. Mm. Uh, but in my first year of high school, I had a, a fantastic uh, science teacher, Mr. Speck, and um, he was the first one to introduce me to genetics through the kind of lens of uh, Gregor Mendel and his pea plants. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Gregor Mendel and his pea plants was that you could take information about how often you saw certain traits in these pea plants and then use some math and some probability and actually predict what the next generation of pea plants was going to look like. And there was just something about that ability to make a prediction about the future and to kind of have an idea about what was going on underneath the surface that really intrigued me about genetics. And I just remember at the time being so excited about being able to make these calculations and make a prediction. Um, and then, you know, it was actually a long time. I, I finished high school, I went off to college, I did actually two different degrees, one in biochemistry and one in fine arts. Hmm. Um, I started working on the Human Genome Project down in Houston, Texas. I didn't know what to do with my life. I went off to New Zealand for a little <laughs> while. And then when I went off to New Zealand, I worked as a, as a database programmer because I picked up kind of computer programming as a skill set as part of working on the Human Genome Project. And I realized that what I was really missing was the science at that point in time. And so I came back and started working in Boston. And it was just really funny to me. And then I, you know, I picked up the dog project and it, you know, I was just kind of thinking like it took me like 10 years, but eventually I ended up back where I'd started in ninth grade with this fascination with genetics. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. It's fascinating to me that you mentioned the Human Genome Project. I didn't know that you worked on that, but I was thinking, in, th in thinking about this conversation, I was wondering, would any of your work even be possible were it not for that project? No. That project has been a, a complete game changer, and I think it's it's hard to overstate how important it's, it is, except to say that every once in a while I'll be reading a genetics paper from before the Human Genome Project, 
and I actually find it hard to understand. I'll sit there going, why are they doing all of these weird, complicated, exp oh, right, there's no yeah. human genome. So it's, it gives us a reference map of the human genome that allows us to keep going back to and understand what's going on. And that's why doing the dog genome, which was the project I worked on as a PhD student, was so important, was because it opened up the possibility of doing things in dog genetics that were similar to what we'd been doing in human genetics. So um, you're pretty active on Twitter, at E-E-N-O-R-K, for those of you who are curious. And it was amusing to me that you're much more of a cat person. I am. <laughs> Is that too much of a confession to uh, share? Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, I, I tell people it's my dirty little secret. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I haven't actually owned a dog. And, you know, my sister has dogs now, and I actually really love hanging out with them. Interestingly enough, my sister adopted her first dog about eight years ago, and it was a very complicated dog, Besco. She's got major anxiety issues and um, other kind of behavioral problems. And my sister ended up getting interested in dog behavior, became a dog trainer, and introduced me to this entire community of people that work professionally with dogs and dog owners. And that's been really important to my work because it turns out that I can do the genetics, but the other part of the puzzle is really understanding what people know about their dogs. Mm -hmm. And so working with a group of people that spend so much time, not just working with dogs, but working with owners mm -hmm. and their dogs, mm -hmm. has been really important in learning how to ask questions in a way that people will be able to give us good information. So that kind of takes me to this whole idea of citizen science, which is not something that people might be familiar with, but it's really um, engaging. The, the masses, really, to help you with your science. And um, Darwin's Dogs is one example of that, but you also have a new one um, that involves ticks. Yes, that is our new project, and it's a really interesting one. It's just getting off the ground. So in spending time with dog owners and living in New England, you hear an awful lot about tick diseases. Mm -hmm. um, so ticks are a big problem up in this area, and both people and dogs um, are susceptible to Lyme disease, and many of them are getting sick. And then it turns out that it's not just Lyme disease. There's different tick diseases all over the country that are affecting people. Things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, um, and, and there's a few other diseases the out there. anaplasmosis, yeah, all of yeah, these. Yeah, exactly. And so what interested us was that people were really worried about this problem. And we realized that if we could somehow work with the people that we were contacting even through the dog project, we would actually have a way to study ticks as well. So we launched this project, we called it Project Ikari, and we basically send out a kit to people that sign up on our website and then they'll collect ticks on that, on that cardboard. It's basically a piece of cardboard with mm -hmm. little stickers and you stick the tick to them and then mail it back to us. And, and these are ticks you found on your pet or on yourself? Uh, it could just or be anywhere. ticks that you've encountered anywhere. I see. Um, we don't need them to have been attached to anything. They don't need to be filled with blood or anything like that and actually we prefer that they haven't eaten because then there's a whole lot of dog blood or human blood involved that we don't want to have to deal with. Um, so even if it was just a tick crawling, that's, we'd be really interested in it. And what we're trying to understand is not just whether the ticks carry a particular disease like Lyme disease or babesiosis or something like that, uh, but also what species of tick they are and what sex of tick they are and also what the tick's microbiome is. People hear a lot about the microbiome in people, which is the bacteria that are kind of living on you and in you. Um, so for example, the bacteria in your intestines. And it turns out that ticks also have their own microbiome in their intestines. And probably what's in their microbiome, which is the bacteria that's you know healthy for a tick to carry, may actually affect how likely they are to also carry something like the Lyme disease bacteria. Really. 
And so we want to understand what the relationship is between the microbiome of the tick and whether it's likely to carry a pathogen, because that might give us insights that would help us come up with new control strategies. Wow. But of course, if we were studying the ticks without the citizen science approach, we, you know, we could go out and collect ticks in our own backyard, but that's a very limited swath of the kind of tick disease picture. Yeah. And so by using the citizen science approach, we can actually send the kits from across the entire country and yeah. get ticks in from everywhere. And then we can start looking at not just whether the microbiome influences, whether they're going to carry disease or the sex of the tick, but we can also look at what geography, you know, where in the country yeah. is it coming from? Or if people send in a tick, send in ticks several years in a row, we can start looking at how things change from year to year. And we know these diseases are becoming more prevalent. Mm -hmm and more and more people are being affected by them. So capturing that yeah. change is really important. Yeah, and it used to be something that really was concentrated in the Northeast, and now I think it's, it's half of the country. It's amazing when you look at the maps. It yeah. just seems to be spreading. Mm -hmm. And so we really need new approaches to, to tackle these diseases. And so this is a way of, of understanding ticks in a way that we haven't before. What is that website for people who are interested in learning more? So it's called Project Akari, A-C-A-R-I dot org. And when you describe citizen science to people, how do you explain the power of it? It's almost like this exponential power that you can tap into. I mean, it's just, it's hard to kind of overstate how important it is. As scientists, we spend a lot of time in our research labs working with a very small group of people. And that works for some problems, but as our methods get better for looking at DNA, mm -hmm. And as our technology gets better and we're able to handle really, really big data sets, and this has been a big part of the kind of science news of the last 10 years, is just this whole big data idea. The more information we have, the more we can discover. In order to get that much information, you need to work with, with, with many, many people from you know, a huge swath of society. And so you know, we're not the only scientists doing this. I think just the other day there was an announcement from the NIH about a new million-person yeah. genetic study. Everybody's really trying to kind of make everything much bigger scale. Yeah. And I think the really unique thing about working through citizen science is that you can get to the scale of thousands or tens of thousands really, really quickly, which has just been fantastic for us. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned that you're on Twitter, and uh, I was reading the little... Um, profile, I guess, like those few words that people use to describe themselves. And yours is immigrant, scientist, and artist, professor at UMass Med School and Broad Institute, founder of Darwin's Dogs. And it struck me um, that immigrant was the first word in yours, and I wondered why. You know, most people don't realize that I'm an immigrant because we moved here when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, my father is from Sweden and my mother's from New Zealand, mm -hmm. so I grew up speaking English at home because my mother's from New Zealand, which is English-speaking. But I still think that that experience of being new to this country has been a real important part of my life. And also the opportunity to travel back to Sweden, to travel to New Zealand, to actually talk to people from different places has also been really important. And so I put immigrant first because it's not just me. I think it's the number of different people that I work with in science that are immigrants or the children of immigrants who have been so important in making science in the United States as powerful as it is today. And I don't think there's any way to overstate how important immigrants are to making this the kind of rich world, yeah. research world that we're in. So even as a baby, you felt in your family that newness. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to explain because, you know, you're growing up and I've got actually a very big family. So I have six brothers and sisters, oh, wow. but it was me, my six siblings and my parents and all of my extended family was elsewhere. Yeah. And so you're kind of 
always new to places in the United States. You have no connection back to the to the kind of history, and so yeah. you're learning things all the time. You know, I grew up playing sports that um, people in America don't usually play things like cricket and oh. you know cross-country skiing is very big in Sweden so we did a lot of that <laughs> and you know things like that and it was always challenging to kind of explain to people yeah we're playing this crazy game that nobody else has ever heard of so yeah I've watched cricket from time to time and it's hard to piece together it really is <laughs> it's a very confusing game and so does that help you relate to people that you come across either in your lab or as students postdocs collaborators yeah, no, I think so. I think right now I've got um, three graduate students in my lab and two of them are immigrants to this mm -hmm, country. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that changes the feeling of the lab uh -huh. to have a diversity of backgrounds and yeah. a diversity of people. And actually, um, Gaurav, who's the graduate student that's doing the tech project, oh, is actually terrific. here from India. And he's really, you know, the project was really his idea. We, I came up with this idea that we could actually work with dog owners um, to collect ticks, you know, and it was just kind of a passing thought and I, I put it on the back burner because we didn't really, we'd never done anything with tick diseases and I didn't know anything about them. But he came to me one day and he said, you know, I think what I really want to do for my thesis research is pursue this idea of a tick project and he kind of came up with the whole uh, des strat uh, scientific design and everything. and. It's been really interesting working with him through it because for every scientist that gets involved in citizen science, there's this learning process like, how do you explain what you're doing to somebody who's not familiar with any of the technical terminology? How do you design a kit to send to people that will be easy enough to use that they can, they can use it and get it back to you and things right. like that? Right. So is there a goal or a couple of goals of your work? Like what would make you say to yourself, you know, okay, we've really accomplished something here? I think right now, having actually built the scientific project that we have through Darwin's dogs, I feel like we've accomplished something just there. Mm -hmm. We've shown that not only is this possible, that people are really, really interested in being engaged in research. And as a scientist, that's exciting because obviously I love science, that's why I went yeah. into it. And so to have the opportunity to talk to other people about science and have them be so excited about yeah. being part of the process has been wonderful. As far as the, the research part of it, we're really still in the early stages. Mm -hmm. And so we've just started doing the genetic analysis of the dogs that we have saliva samples from. And we've managed to figure out that we, we can predict the size of a dog pretty well, which was exciting. Um, but you know, that's not disease, that's just yeah. size, but it was a proof of principle for us. It showed that this was something we could do. But I think at the point in time when we have enough dogs that we can take something like noise phobia, where mm -hmm. the dog gets really startled by a loud noise or by thunderstorms or anxiety, and actually show that we can use the genetic information from these dogs and the behavioral information that the owners have given us, connect those two together and actually find genes mm -hmm. that are involved in these disorders, that's when I'll feel like we've really demonstrated the power of this mm -hmm. approach. Because once you've done that, then you've really, um, like you said, proven that it can work and then the sky is the limit. Exactly, and we're just gonna kind of keep on scaling it up. So the interesting thing about psychiatric diseases, which a lot of people are not aware of, is that even though we do have drugs to treat them, we don't really have new drugs. Mm. All of the drugs we're using now are decades old, and we've had a lot of trouble coming up with anything new that actually works. And part of the reason for this is just that we don't understand what causes psychiatric diseases. We don't know what's going wrong in the brain to actually lead to these diseases, which means the drugs we have tend to just kind of treat the whole brain, treat and so the they symptom. have a lot of side effects, yeah. and they don't always work very well, and, and this kind of thing. And so the real goal at the end of the day is if we can understand not the, the, on a symptom level what's wrong, but on a pathway level, as we call it, if we can say that 
this thing in the brain, when it isn't turned on properly, that means that there's this whole cascade of effects, mm -hmm. then we might be able to design a drug that targets whatever that, that trigger is that hasn't been turned on properly mm -hmm. in somebody who's sick. And that's a much more specific approach, and hopefully it'll be more effective and have fewer side effects. And so understanding the biology, understanding why these disorders happen is really key part of being able to come up with better treatments. That makes a lot of sense. So your enthusiasm for science, we've learned, is long-standing <laughs> and infectious, I think, yeah. and that's great. And so I'm wondering if you think that science is a good career. Would you recommend it? I recommend it 100%. Yeah. I've had so much fun doing science. It's challenging. It's really hard at times. You know, there's parts of part, times when you're going through your PhD, which takes about five years, where the research does get really frustrating. But it's also an opportunity to do your own work, to come up with your own ideas, and to discover things that nobody knows. And that's an incredible feeling to say, I now have figured out a piece of the puzzle that nobody's ever been able to figure out before. And I also get to do a lot of incredibly exciting things like start citizen science projects to study people's dogs and things that I would have never had an opportunity to if I'd made a different decision. Eleanor Carlson, thank you. Thank you. Eleanor Carlson is an assistant professor in bioinformatics and integrative biology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. You can learn more about her work and her team by visiting carlsonlab.org. And one footnote to this conversation, shortly after we recorded the podcast, Darwin's Dogs became part of Darwin's Ark, a nonprofit organization supporting canine genomic research and the ongoing work of Darwin's Dogs. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical. Mm -hmm.